I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I look at the newspaper headlines from major events in our nation's history. And then I ignore those headlines and find out what else was being reported across the country on the exact same day. If I were to say the date of May 23rd, 1934, not that many people would immediately know what happened on that infamous day. But to me, this is one of the most fascinating stories in history. If I were to mention a couple of names along with that date, I think most people would guess exactly what happened. The two names are Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. And on May 23rd, 1934, the infamous couple was killed in a shootout with authorities who'd been tracking them for months. Morning newspapers from that day missed out on the juicy headlines since they went into circulation before the pair was killed. But those papers that had afternoon deliveries were able to beat their competitors to the first headlines about the event. The Ruston Daily Leader in Ruston, Louisiana, not far from where Bonnie and Clyde were killed, had a headline in giant, bold letters. Two words filled the entire first row of the page. Barrow killed. With a subheadline of Notorious Gunman and Cigar-Smoking Girlfriend Killed Early Today Near Acadia by Texas Rangers and Sheriff. It surprised me how many newspapers just listed Bonnie as the girlfriend or woman companion rather than give her name. One of the reasons Bonnie and Clyde were so popular in the media was because Bonnie was completely different than most other women of the early 30s. She was crude, she was vulgar, she was immoral, and she played around with big guns. People had never seen anyone like her. At this time in history, the country was still suffering through the effects of the Great Depression, and the stories of the bank-robbing, murdering couple gave people a diversion from their everyday miserable lives, and the public ate it up, every word printed about the duo. So when Bonnie and Clyde were killed on May 23, 1934, they made top headlines in hundreds and hundreds of newspapers across the nation. But... As crazy as they were, this podcast isn't about Bonnie and Clyde. It's about what else was being reported around the country on the same day their lives ended in a shootout on a lonely country road. So, let's find some additional history. My first additional history story from May 23rd, 1934 comes from the Evening News Journal out of Clovis, New Mexico. I found similar headlines in papers all over the country, right next to the articles about Bonnie and Clyde. This headline reads, Dillinger's girl is found guilty. And this is the story of how Mary Evelyn Frechette, aka Billy Frechette, went to jail. Friends, I'll admit, I had no idea who this woman was before reading about her. 
But it seems fitting that she was making newspaper headlines the same day as Bonnie and Clyde were killed, since she was running around with famous outlaws too. At the time of her sentencing, Billy Frechette was in her mid-twenties, and she was from the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin. Her father was French, and her mother was Native American, or at least half Native American. Billy's father died when she was only eight years old, and after a while, she got sent to South Dakota to go to a boarding school for Native Americans. Eventually, Billy ended up in Chicago working as a nursemaid and waitress. That's where she met a man named Welton Sparks. Now, Welton wasn't the best guy in the world, and in July of 1932, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison for robbery. But that didn't matter to Billy because she was in love. Or at least she thought she was. She ended up marrying Welton while he was in jail, just a few days before he was shipped off to start his prison sentence. With Welton out of her life for the foreseeable future, Billy was a bit jaded. Things weren't really going her way. One night, she met a man at a dance hall. A man just as famous as Clyde Barrow during the Depression era. A man by the name of John Dillinger. Now, Billy loved being with Dillinger because he spoiled her and bought her everything she wanted. On top of that, he actually treated her really well. She kept house for him and cooked and cleaned, and for the most part, ignored his questionable extracurricular activities. By the time John and Billy got together, he had amassed quite the gang of criminals and managed to slip out of the grasp of authorities many times as he robbed banks and even police stations. One time, after he'd been shot, John managed to get away only because Billy drove the getaway car and got them out of the situation just in the nick of time. When Billy and John had been together for about six months, everything came to a sudden halt. On April 9th, 1934, Billy was arrested for harboring Dillinger in her apartment. He watched the entire thing go down from a hiding spot nearby. He watched as they entered her apartment and did a search. And he watched as she was taken away by the police. But John didn't dare attempt to rescue right then because it would give away his location and the fact that he was still in town. Some say as soon as Billy was arrested, Dillinger vowed to break her out of jail. But even though he'd been known to break into police stations in the past, he never made any attempt to free Billy. Instead, she went to trial just six weeks later and was sentenced to two years in prison, as we learn from all those newspaper articles from May 23, 1934. John Dillinger was pretty arrogant and he flaunted his freedom. He started going to baseball games and long walks around town and to the theater. He also didn't wait very long to prove just how much of a scumbag he was by finding a new woman only a few weeks after Billy was sentenced to prison. And it was his relationship with the new woman that ultimately led to his death during a shootout with police just two months after Billy's sentencing. I could go on and on about Dillinger's death, but we can save that for another day since this story is about Billy. In an interesting twist to cap off the story of Evelyn, a.k.a. Billy Frechette, I think it's worth knowing what happened 
after she finished serving her prison sentence. When Billy was released, she got together with John Dillinger's family and went on a five-year lecture circuit around the country, speaking on the topic of, can you guess? Crime doesn't pay. I thought that was pretty great. Billy eventually got married again, multiple times, and returned to the Menominee Reservation in Wisconsin. She died of cancer when she was in her 60s. Okay, for my next story from the newspapers on May 23rd, 1934, I'm heading back to the city of Chicago. I assume the Chicago Daily Tribune was a morning newspaper because they didn't report the story of Bonnie and Clyde until the next day. Instead, their tall, bold letter headline was about an event that took place in Chicago the afternoon before. Their front page headline reads, Fear Six Dead in Tank Crash. Now, a tank could mean any number of things, so of course I read on to understand what happened on that fateful day. And friends, it's crazy. Apparently, there was a building on West Austin Avenue, just two blocks from the Chicago River, called the Oakley Building. I'm not positive how many floors were in the Oakley Building, but I know for sure there were at least seven floors, so it was pretty tall. The Oakley Building was home to a printing company, a rubber company, multiple laboratories, and even an engraving company, just to name a few. Late in the afternoon on that Wednesday, employees in the different offices were working as normal, probably starting to think about going home for the evening, when suddenly they started hearing cracking and popping noises. The noises were loud enough and alarming enough that many people started to run for the exits, trying the stairway and the fire escapes and the elevator, basically any way they could get down and out of the building. Then, with a deafening crash, the water tank that had been sitting safely on the roof of the building for 42 years suddenly came crashing through the floor. The water tank crashed down through the top floor, and then the next floor, and then the next, and then the next. It continued all the way until it came to rest on the third floor. Along the way, the 330,000 pound water tank spewed its recently filled water supply, 40,000 gallons of water. Onlookers watched from outside as the building shook and bulged. They probably didn't have a clue what was happening inside. Rescue workers were immediately dispatched, of course, and firemen risked their lives to save those people who were trapped in the unstable building. Many of the employees in the building were women, and at least one version of the story says they were all hysterical. I mean, of course they were. Women are always hysterical. You can insert as much sarcasm there as you want. Anyway, at least 40 of those women had to escape from an upper floor using a fire escape. So I'm sure it wasn't a fun experience. Anyway, one of the people inside the Oakley building at the time of the collapse was the building's engineer, H.L. Schatzberger. Now, Schatzberger was on the first floor of the building along with two of his sons when the chaos started. A third son, 17-year-old Roy, worked for a printing company located on the third floor where the tank came to rest. 
As soon as the accident happened, Mr. Schatzberger rushed to the third floor to search for his son. He assisted rescue workers as they pulled injured people from the wreckage. But when he saw a half-buried body in the rubble, he knew it was Roy. He identified the body and then collapsed. What a terrible thing for a father to have to do. With Mr. Schatzberger incapacitated, it was up to another son, Earl, to walk home and tell their mother that his brother had just been killed in the tank collapse. But when Earl got home, everything changed. There, sitting in the house, completely unharmed, was his little brother, Roy. His father had misidentified the body. Unfortunately, that meant a different family lost a loved one that day. Now, I wanted to find more information about the real victims of the collapse, so I turned to other sources. One of those victims was a man by the name of Frank Scheibel. Depending on which source you read, Frank was born in either Hungary or Romania, and then he immigrated to the United States when he was just six years old. Frank was in his mid-30s at the time of the collapse and worked as a bookkeeper for the Triangle Engraving Company. Sadly, he left behind a wife and three young kids when he died. Another victim was Harry F. Vale. Harry was a salesman for the Guston Printing Company, and he had celebrated his 53rd birthday just a few weeks before the tank collapse. Unfortunately for Harry, he was no stranger to tragedy. He'd lost his wife when she was in her 30s, just a month after she'd given birth to their daughter. That left Harry to raise his kids as a single father. He'd already been a widower for 20 years when the tank collapsed. The interesting thing about Harry is that he didn't even work in the Oakley building. Poor Harry had gone there on an errand. When he didn't return to his employer that afternoon, and when he didn't show up at home that evening, friends and family realized he'd fallen victim to the water tank crash. Rest in peace, Harry, Frank, and all the others from that day. For my last additional history story of the day, I picked a completely random newspaper from across the country to see if I could find some sort of interesting local story. This is one of my favorite ways to find unique stories. Basically, I close my eyes and point at a list of newspapers. It's very scientific. Anyway, for this story, I chose the Mount Carmel item out of Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania. Just like so many other papers from that day, the Mount Carmel item had a big headline announcing the deaths of Bonnie and Clyde. But this paper also had a teeny tiny article on the front page right next to Bonnie and Clyde. The article was giving an update on the condition of 13-year-old Agnes Kramer, who was in the hospital having surgery for appendicitis. Nowadays, Mount Carmel has a population of between five and 6,000 people. Back in the 30s, Mount Carmel hit its population peak and had to triple the residents they have now. It turns out that Agnes Kramer's father was well known in the city of Mount Carmel. Now, I don't know if it was her father's notoriety that made Agnes hit the front page, or if it was just part of the nosiness of that era. I mean, it's not like it was a slow news day, right? 
They printed everything in the newspapers back then. I recently found out that my own great-grandmother was a reporter, aka a gossip columnist of sorts, for 33 years. Anyway, the itty-bitty article about Agnes caught my eye for two different reasons. First, my great-aunt Loa died of a ruptured appendix when she was just 11 years old, back in the 30s, and the article made me think of her. Her mother was the aforementioned gossip columnist. Second, and more importantly, Agnes wasn't the only person with appendicitis mentioned on that front page. And in fact, I'd been seeing a lot about someone else with appendicitis as I researched the other stories of the day. That other person was a man by the name of William Robinson. William's name doesn't come up these days, and I doubt very many people know who he was. But back in the 1930s, he was considered a modern explorer. Robinson first became popular a few years earlier when he was the first to sail around the world in a small boat. Then he set off on another voyage that found him stuck on the Galapagos Islands with appendicitis. William had recently married a woman named Florence Crane. Florence came from a very wealthy Chicago family. Considering that Florence's brother was named Cornelius Vanderbilt Crane, you know their family had money. William and Florence were calling the trip to the Galapagos their honeymoon trip. I don't know about you, but when I got married, I didn't get a honeymoon that lasted for months and months. Anyway, back in the 1930s, many people died from appendicitis because treatment wasn't nearly as advanced as it is now, and treatment wasn't readily available like it is now. When William fell ill on the Galapagos, people back in the United States mainland jumped into action to save him. Because that's what happens when you have a lot of money. The country sent two Navy planes and a destroyer stocked with all the personnel and equipment needed to perform emergency surgery to the Galapagos. At the time the articles were printed, the planes were still on their way to the islands. It was a 1,000-mile journey to get there. Luckily, William survived his nightmare, and in 1936, he released a book about his journey called Voyage to Galapagos. If you know where to look, you can still find copies of his book around today. And if you're wondering, 13-year-old Agnes Kramer survived her appendicitis surgery too. Unfortunately, Agnes only lived for eight more years, though, and then, according to her death certificate, she died of subacute streptococcus viridens endocarditis when she was just 21. I have absolutely no idea what that means because I'm not a doctor. If you know, use my contact information and drop me a note. always end each episode with an advertisement I find in one of the newspapers of the day. For today's advertisement, I'm going to go with Lux Laundry Soap, but in a roundabout way. In the Decatur Herald from May 23, 1934, it was advertised on page 2 that if you attended a motion picture style lecture, whatever that means, you could get a free box of Lux Laundry Soap. Then on page 7, it says you can also get a free box of Lux Laundry Soap by buying women's underwear. 
I'm not sure how Lux made any money if they gave it away so often, but I do know there were many, shall we say, interesting Lux advertisements in the 1930s. If you want to be shocked or maybe have a good laugh, do an internet search for those ads. And maybe I'll leave links to a few on our Facebook group page. Friends, thanks for joining me for this episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. And check in next week for more fun headlines and more crazy stories.